0: This podcast is brought to you by FormKeep. Form endpoints for designers and developers. No iframes, JavaScript embeds, or CSS overrides. Try out our sandbox mode before you buy at formkeep.com. I look at a
1: light like that. Yeah, I don't know. It's nice. I'm surprised that with the exposed bulbs, it's not like overwhelmingly um, bright. They're weird-looking bulbs, though. I don't know how hard they're going to be to replace when one of them burns out. What you got yourself there is
0: a Sputnik lamp. Okay. That's what it's called. We'll put a link in the show notes for all of our listeners. <laughs> they can have one at their house too, just like Sean. It's a nice lamp. This is the new house, right? This is the new house. Wow. See, it's got the same old internet. Yeah, same same old internet, Albuquerque internet. Is the internet wait, is the internet bad? <laughs> yeah, you would just Shouldn't had a be. massive
1: fallout on you. <laughs>
0: It's probably on our end. It's probably raining. It is raining outside, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, we're getting a tour. This
1: is the other direction. Nice kitchen. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. I appreciate the ThoughtBot red chair. Mm
2: Mm-hmm. Yes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What's going on? Besides, you know, moving.
1: I'm rewriting how we do inserts in diesel for like the 20th time. Why is that? We had too many structs and too many traits related to inserting things. And then a bunch of, there was a bunch of stuff that just from using it in practice was starting to bug me. One of the big ones being our Upsert API. Okay. So what you would do with Diesel today is you would call the various Upsert methods on the model that you're going to be inserting, which you then pass to the function insert. So it'd be like insert open paren you know user dot on conflict do nothing close paren. Which okay. it kind of is fine in that case, but then what happens is when you want to specify a conflict target, if you want to specify, will only do nothing if it conflicts on the email column, then you start to get into this is getting long enough that you're going to want to break it into multiple lines. But because this is just an argument to a function, there's no natural place to put in a line break. And if you're all if you're doing on conflict to update set, odds are it's going to want to span across three lines and it's just again it, like the nesting gets really awkward because you're now you have a multi-line argument to a function. Yeah. And so you want to pull it into a local variable, but like what the hell do you name the variable that is the combination of the data that you're inserting and the on conflict clause? A lot of the reason I'm changing our internals is refactoring to make that easier. And then the other thing I'm doing is right now our API is insert record into table, and I'm going to change that to insert into table.values record. The main reason actually just being because I noticed that if you mess up your argument to insert, what you should get is an error message when you try and call dot .into that says you can't call dot .into because of the constraint failing, mm-hmm. but instead it says you passed me one argument, I expected zero arguments because now it assumes that you're calling into function from the standard library, which uh, is like convert this thing into a thing of another type. Mm-hmm. And since all types implement into for the same type, you know that's always there, so it just assumes... Oh well there's this other trait that has a f- thing called into but that constraint failed so you clearly just meant into yourself yep. and that takes zero arguments. So that was one reason then the other the second reason is just the new API is going to map more closely to SQL that is exactly how it's structured in SQL insert into table name values whatever. Yep. You know there's a column list in there but you never have to specify the column list because we know that based on the, the values you pass to us. Right. And then the final the last reason was I'm starting to think about APIs for inserting from a select statement. So that's the other way you can do an insert in every backend. It's part of the ANSI standards. You can do insert into table name, select, yada, yada, yada. yada. And if you're just writing it like that, the API is pretty straightforward. It's exactly what we have right now, but you pass us a select statement instead of, you know, Rust data. But Hmm. I was struggling with a decent API for if you then want to also specify a column list, because just like when you're doing an insert with normal, you know, values, when you're inserting from a select statement, you can also specify the column list. Why would
0: you need to do that if you can select the exact column list that you care about?
1: That's assuming that you're selecting from the same table.
0: Mm, Or selecting and aliasing the columns into the names that are your, right? So like if you're selecting from one table with different column names, but you alias the column names into the column names that (laughs) that map to the table you're inserting into, wasn't that just work or no?
1: I don't think that works on all backends. Okay. I, I could be wrong there. If nothing else, certainly there's no way we could do that type safe and right. enforce type safety.
0: I might be making that up anyway. Maybe it's a thing I think should work, and every time I try it, it doesn't work, and I have to go, oh, yeah, I need values.
1: Yeah. The best API I could come up with, though, with the insert values into table name that would work with specifying a column list is insert your select statement into, and then you pass the list of columns to, to into, mm-hmm. which is like, it's concise, and it, like when you know that that's the API, it's kind of clear, but it's one of those, like, eh, I don't know that I'd ever think to do that.
0: Yeah, it doesn't make much sense to me as an outsider.
1: <laughs> yeah. When I'm doing insert into table name, values, whatever, with that structure, I can think of a lot more reasonable APIs, like insert into table name dot from select, where the first argument's a column list, and the second argument's a select statement, mm-hmm. or other things in that you know of that nature, but it's it's a lot more flexible.
0: Yeah. How does this change the API around upserts?
1: So again, today it's like insert open paren user dot on conflict open paren, whatever on conflict clause target you have, Mm -hmm. comma, do update dot set open paren, whatever the hell you're setting, close paren, close paren, close paren, close paren, close paren, paren, (laughs) right? So first of all, I want to, for on conflict, right now it's a function that takes two arguments. The first one is the on conflict target. The second one's the on conflict action. Mm-hmm. The target is either the name of a constraint or a list of columns yep. And then the action is either do nothing or do update with the, the set the set clause. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna break that into a Method style syntax. So on conflict is a function that takes one argument and that argument is the action And then that returns a struct which has two methods on it do update and do nothing
0: right and you'll still chain those on to the like user in this case the user struct
1: no, no. So you'll chain those onto the insert statement. So the yeah, other thing yeah. that'll be nice is it is it will appear in your code in the same place it appears in the actual SQL query. So it'll, you know, because yeah. the, the on conflict statement clause in SQL, in Postgres anyway, appears. It's the last thing in your query except for the returning clause.
0: Right. And that's like at the beginning of this when you like laid out how the upsert statement looks. For whatever reason, it just seemed weird to me that like insert was a function, but then you called the Upsert which is like kind of similar to insert right like in maybe not in SQL terms But in like the way I think about it like you're executing an upsert or you're executing an insert Yeah, and then but you call that on a struct rather than like it being a thing that I'm doing in diesel land. Oops decline Okay
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think the reason I structured it that way was I didn't want an implementation which had fields on the insert statement struct that were specific to Postgres Mm-hmm. Also at the time we had too many insert statement structs and it was gonna be fu- really funky to just get any like Where do these functions live gonna be from a trait? But then we need to know the output type and the output types now gonna it's no longer like we're wrapping self It's we're gonna be changing one of the parameters of self But there's not a great way to describe that so it's gonna be it was it would have been funky that way The implementation that I'm going with makes a lot of like I think I only you know I, I would not have landed on this if I hadn't implemented it this way first and we're now back down to we have exactly one insert statement struct, and it is responsible for all insert statements.
0: So this is a breaking change then?
1: Yes? Yes. Well, do you consider deprecation warnings a breaking change? I do not, no. Then no, it is not a, is not a breaking change. It's certainly under the Semver guidelines for Rust libraries. It is not considered a breaking change because we are deprecating things, not removing anything. But the next release of Diesel is going to be 099 and mm. 0.99 is going to be identical to 1.0 except 1.0 will not include any deprecated code.
0: So why go to 0.99? Why like cuz now you have put yourself in a corner where you're like okay the next thing has to be 1.0 basically or you can make it 0.99.1. I mean I'm
1: I'm I'm literally going to release it at the same time as 1.0. It is it is purely a okay. mi- a migration aid. Okay. Cuz the only difference between it and 1.0 is going to be the removal okay. of deprecated code. It's just purely there so that any actual breaking changes that occur you can tackle those in a smaller portion without having to deal with all of the deprecation warnings right away. And I'll probably any patch level releases I do to 1.0, I will probably also backport to 0.99 for as long as is reasonable.
0: What's your plan for like? <laughs> do you have enough users to really make like a beta and release candidate viable, or are you just going to be like, here's
1: 1.0? No, we do. We will probably do a beta. I haven't decided what our release cycle is going to look like post 1.0 yet, mm-hmm. or we haven't we haven't even discussed it in the in the core team at all. We definitely have enough users to, to justify doing a beta. There's been no reason to at this point because we're 0.x software. Our beta is we release a new version. Right. The last release, 0.16. I was not planning on having a 0.16. I was planning on the next release being 1.0. And we only did that because I ended up deciding to make something which was likely to be a relatively minor breaking change for most people. But like had a surface area that there were a lot of places for me to get things wrong. And so I wanted it out there as quickly as possible and for as long as possible pre 1.0 so that if there wasn't anything that I missed that specifically would need a breaking change to Remedy, mm-hmm. that I would have the best chance of doing that. Yeah, that makes sense.
0: I also like just general the general approach of like keeping it close to sequel because <laughs> like even if you don't know sequel and you just learn diesel, right? Yep. Like, it's not that far when you have to, like, eventually be like, oh, let me, I guess I'm going to have to write some SQL or figure it out. Like, it's not such a drastic departure. It's like, oh, this is, I see how this maps closely to this thing I'm used to. And the v- reverse is true if, like, you're the type of person who's, like, really like to write raw SQL statements everywhere, but this project is using a framework. And you're like, oh, well, actually, <laughs> yeah it's, it's comfortable. It's close. Not that SQL is great
1: but <laughs> right well and that's what like I was gonna say keeping close to SQL is a secondary goal it is it is a goal I want diesel to be close enough to SQL that I honestly like you know so like insert values into table versus insert into table values whatever you were passing to the to insert before mm-hmm. like if the only argument for that was this is close to a sequel I wouldn't make that change right for example I'm not gonna start now doing select select clause dot from your table it's still table dot select your select clause, mm-hmm. mainly just because select you know is special because you don't always care what your select clause is, and I don't want to make you say select star because it's really redundant. Right, but yeah, I'm also you know this is it's also got me thinking the way delete and update works if you want a where clause right now is so up delete and update are much closer to SQL today, so it's update table name dot set and then whatever you're, you're setting. Mm-hmm. But then if you want to have a where clause, the way that works today is you just call filter on that. Basically, you pass us a select statement. That mm-hmm. only has a where clause. And so it'd be you know update filter whatever, close friend, close friend, dot set. And this is another one of those cases where just if you have a complex where clause, you want this to break onto multiple lines because this is an argument to a function. Mm-hmm. Okay, so then you want to pull it out to a local variable. But then the only name I usually have ever come up with for that is like update target, which just sounds or rows to update you know it's yeah. just like it's, it's 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 hard to name so that's another one i want to uh, i'm going to change i'll probably make it so you can still pass the old thing because there's no reason not to but i'll probably have it just i'll have a filter method on update statement and delete statement that you know just does the same thing as if you called filter on the thing that you passed to update mm-hmm. it is interesting though insert has had far more churn than update and delete probably just because upsert has affected it so much and then batch insert has affected it so much. It's been interesting to see how it's evolved. Cuz like the original reason we had two structs for insert statement was one had a returning clause and the other didn't. And so I eventually unified those into one struct in preparation for adding batch insert. Or specifically, I think it was when I wanted to support batch insert for SQLite cuz SQLite does not support the default keyword. So if you so right, if you're inserting an array of records, and some of the time you want the default value, Right. you can't do that on SQLite in a single query without the default keyword because the column list needs to be the same for all the things that you're inserting. But there's actually no reason that you need to do it in a single query for SQLite because there's no round trip time. Okay. So in, in SQLite, we just you know loop over the array and do one query per row in, in the array. And that worked. And so we had batch insert statement and insert statement. And the reason those had to be separate was basically it was really weird and painful to try and make implementation of execute DSL for SQLite not conflict with the implementation for every other backend. And then the other reason was at the same time, I was trying to fix a bug where we blew up if you gave us an empty array because mm-hmm. we try and get the column names and, the, and, oh, there's no there's no thing there to get the columns from. Mm-hmm. And that one definitely needed to be separate. Now, if you pass us an empty array, we execute select one from table name where one equals zero.
0: <laughs> yeah, I've seen that in Rail- Rails land, yeah.
1: Well, Rails should never do that. Rails, you know, doesn't attempt to do batch inserts in a single query.
0: No, but I've seen the where one equals zero.
1: Yeah, it was funny. I actually ran into, well, so I first did it select one where one equals zero and mm-hmm. then ran the test. Oh, nope, that invalid on, on my So I changed it to select one from table name where one equals zero. And then the test failure I got was expected to, because I, I just run this query and then execute returns the number of rows that were affected. So I just assert that the, you know, the return value was zero and not an error. And so the test failure was expected, okay, zero, got, okay, one eight four four six seven four four zero seven three seven zero nine five five one six one five. Of course. Which for those who don't recognize that number, <laughs> it, it took me a minute to recognize it. It's negative one as an unsigned 64-bit integer. Okay. <laughs> because I didn't call the function from MySQL that basically, for a SELECT statement, buffers all of the rows into in in memory, mm-hmm. which I never did because this is on the function execute, which you would only ever do for something that, by definition, does not return any rows.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Anyway, so <laughs> now we're calling that. And I I fig- made I made a note in the final commit message of just. You know, if the fact that we're doing a select statement here ever causes problems, because in theory, like we could be doing assertions somewhere that the number of columns is what we expect or that the types of those columns are what we expect. I figure if it really becomes a problem, I could execute insert into table name, select returning clause from table name or no, insert into table name, whatever column list you would have done. Mm -hmm. I don't even actually, that's a good point. I I, think about it. I can't get the column list because I need I, I need an element in the array in order to get the column list. Right. So that won't work. Anyway, what I was thinking was I could do insert into table name, column list, select column list from table name, where one equals zero, and that would be the semantically like this does not insert anything, but the result structure that you get from the database will have exactly the same structure as what you would have expected It's still semantically an insert statement. Mm -hmm. Anyway, for now, we do select one where one equals zero, and it works, kind of. (laughs) Kind of, sort of. But so now that we can move that case into the query builder, that freed me up to then get rid of batch insert statement and... Anyway, that's the long and somewhat dull history of why we have why we have so many damn insert statements. Trucks and diesel.
0: <laughs> no, it's cool. I also think that upsert being kind of upsert strikes me as more of a first class citizen of Diesel than it does of other ORMs that I've used. So I think that's cool. It just always felt tacked on. And in Active Record, you have to rely on some sort of library if you want to do it, right? Yep. And even in Ecto, I don't know if this is actually the case, but I I didn't feel like 100 percent great. To me, the way it was done in Ecto, it wasn't like into. I wasn't like. I bet the way I do an upsert is to do this. I was like, let me look at the documentation, and make sure I get this right. So, yeah, I think if you can make it clear that you know, you know, after you do it once, you don't ever really need to consult the documentation again.
1: Yeah, and I, and I want the API to be self-discoverable. You know, so if you're familiar with updates in Diesel, you know it's you know it's update table name dot set. And so I figure people might intuitively try do update dot set, and then our APIs anything that you could have passed to an update statement you can pass to do update here. Mm-hmm. Cool. There's a little secret thing, though, that, that can break Diesel that I n- haven't bothered to go in and, and prevent from compiling. This one thing that Diesel hates. <laughs> this one thing. <laughs> so there's a special magic table for Upsert in Postgres called excluded, which gives you the, if you do excluded.name, that will give you the value of the name column that you just tried to insert but failed to insert. Okay and so we need to give you access to that so we have just a function called excluded that takes a column and then and you know does the thing there's nothing in diesel ensuring that you're only passing excluded to upsert you can pass that to a regular update and it'll compile just fine and then blow up at runtime because excluded dot whatever doesn't make sense inside upsert okay well, it's one, it's one of those you're only going to find if you're really trying. But I, <laughs> right. I, I noticed it when I was writing. I'm like, we should really make this fail to compile. And then I thought about what it was going to take to make it fail to compile. I'm like, this requires having another trait that says this is not excluded. And we implement that for everything in our ESG.
0: Yeah, that sounds like a, it hurts when I do this. Don't don't do that uh,
1: <laughs> kind of situation. And there's no reason that you would ever run into that right. unless you're just looking for ways to break diesel. Right. Yeah.
0: Which I'm sure nobody will ever do. No, of course not. <laughs> Once it's running, you know, the world's most powerful websites.
1: Well, I, I mean this wouldn't be, you know, a vulnerability from the outside. I mean it, hmm, a programmer. Potential. Right. A, a, writing a programmer would have to code. mess up.
0: Yes. Cool. When's one
1: Right now we're targeting November twenty third. Wow. All right. Cool. Which is gonna be Diesel's second birthday. Thanksgiving It was gifts. Thanksgiving two years ago, so yeah. it shouldn't it should not be Thanksgiving this year. <laughs> This Thanksgiving this year. <laughs> Look at that. Okay, maybe November twenty fourth then, because I'm I'm actually I'm actually hosting Thanksgiving dinner at my house this year. Yeah,
0: but you know you got to do like you know how Ruby ships a version every Christmas. This is just be your thing every Thanksgiving. Yeah, I gotta guess ship it's a ready version. to
1: go if it's ready to go the night before. Yeah.
0: <laughs> there you go. I, I like it. Go for it.
1: Anyway, that's our targeted date. Really, the only main blocker is Docs, mm-hmm. and then just a handful of things. That I was you know upon looking at my light, I'm like. I could do this without a breaking change, but it'll be easier to do it by making a breaking change. The main driver actually of all of this I'm touching insert statement for the 20th time was I wanted to add a more lightweight API for inserts. So when you're doing an update, you can pass us just like column name.eq value mm-hmm. and I call that an ad hoc update. Or you can pass us a struct which implements as change set so you just have a you know you have a struct with fields that are named whatever the columns are or are named whatever you want them to be and have an annotation on them that says column name equals whatever, But drive as change set on that and then that does the same thing. For insert right now, we only have the struct form. And so if it's just one of those, I'm only ever going to insert into this table once and it's like one or two columns, it just feels, you can define a struct in your function and that's fine, but just like it feels really heavyweight. So I want to have a, a more lightweight API where you just do insert, a, you know, ID.EQ1 named .EQ Sean. Mm-hmm. And that was just one of those, this will be easier if I can do it with a breaking change. Sounds
0: good. So, speaking of compilers, <laughs> many episodes ago we talked about a new project I was on where I saw contracts.Ruby being used, which is like a Ruby library. We'll link to it in the show notes for specifying contracts on various methods. And it lets you do things like have pattern matching and stuff like that. I think we both kind of like gave it like a immediate like, hmm, Interesting, but I don't see what this gets us. Right. So a listener, Tim wrote into us to basically say that he thought we kind of gave it short shrift and he looked into it and he felt like we were being kind of overly negative on it. And that wasn't my intention to be negative. It was more my intention to be like, kind of like what I was saying, this seems interesting, but it doesn't seem to escalate to a a thing that I'd be willing to take on in, in my projects. You know, now that I have, I actually do have now a couple months worth of experience of dealing with it on a project and you know, it's just not, <laughs> it's not cutting it for me.
1: <laughs> I mean, it, it's, it's at runtime.
0: Right. And that's the big thing. And Tim was pointing out that it does lots of cool things that like advanced type systems don't like some type systems don't do. Like it has non-nullable types like that. It has union types. It has that. All... Okay.
1: So in terms of just a type system that does runtime assertions only, you know, just a thing that is a nice DSLE way of like a documenting that the thing is, is never meant to be null, but then also asserting that it's not null. Just because no method error on nil is mm-hmm. such a common thing in Ruby, and you want to catch it as early as possible, that one I actually do think is is useful to have.
0: I think it. I think it's useful to have, but I think it, at that point, if this appeals to you, I just don't know why you're using Ruby. Sure. Right. Yes, I agree. And so, like fighting against it to the point where you're going to put these contracts all over your code seems. <laughs> Like you got to find a better way because it's a it's a losing battle. As you bring more and more people onto your team who are Ruby developers, are going to be like, "This is I don't want to do this. This isn't what I do." But or bring people who aren't necessarily Ruby developers, and they see this, they're going to be confused by it. I think the big thing missing is like there's little value to it as a runtime only thing, particularly if it's only run in tests.
1: Right. Well, and like you, met, you mentioned, union types, which is an interesting one, because there's there's kind of when you people say union types, they can usually they usually mean one of two things. Right. They either mean a sum type or an enum, depending on your functional language of choice, or they mean something that is of the form of like string pipe, you know, where it's one of these two concrete types.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And the latter is really, you know, useful, but at compile time and yes. as a way to, to structure data. So the second form where you have something that's like string pipe int, you know, it's one of these two types. That's that's a really cool and useful feature. You know, Crystal has it, TypeScript has it. And it's really, really cool. But the other thing that both of those languages have is type inference, which you kind of really need to make that pleasant to use. You know, in Crystal, it's very useful to just like it infers, OK, it's one of these types and it ensures that you can only call methods that are common to those two types. Right. Again, And again, at compile time.
0: Yeah. And there's nothing there for that in Ruby. I mean, it is the equivalent of having like if you are the type of Ruby programmer who puts a bunch of like is a and has a and responds to and things like that in the body of your methods you may find this an interesting way to express those yeah in perhaps a more in a more concise manner right but it's still I mean,
1: those are a smell right
0: right i mean in ruby yeah right because you're trying to do all this stuff at runtime you know it's not the way i would write it but you know some people really like that and i could also potentially see an argument for using something like that in business process type things as a way to say like here's the start state of this object like in order for this to even start it has to be a you know a document that is in this state and you know whatever and, cre- and create a type for that somehow yeah maybe but i could also just put that as a conditional <laughs> so <laughs> you know and the project that i'm on now they they use it at runtime and in some ways that's interesting because it catches bugs that come that show up in the error tracker and we're like okay cool we can fix this but a lot of times it ends up being like oh the contract is too strict so we need to loosen right. the contract or I look at the associated PR and it's just like I deleted the contract off this and now it just works <laughs> there's also some places where because they're using it at runtime, <laughs> they catch the error that gets raised by a bad contract or a non-matching contract or whatever Mm-hmm. And then just ignore the error or say, oh, it's inval- the record's invalid because of the contract. Like calling this method with this contract is invalid. Which I tried to make the point that like, I don't think you're meant to be catching these exceptions. <laughs> right. At runtime. I think you're, you're meant to be avoiding them at all costs. They are an end the program exception, not a flow control exception, which should be zero of them for the record. Right. So yeah, I mean, interesting project if, you're in, if you like doing that type of stuff. But I think if you looked at it and you like what it's doing, I think you should look at other languages that have this as part of a first class feature. Yeah. To that end, I was actually just playing, I just played with Crystal last week here at ThoughtBot. We have uh, Paul Smith, who works with me, is very interested in Crystal and has been writing a little web framework. We'll have to have him on to talk about it. I don't want to spoil too much of it, but we did a little workshop in it. And it was like, it's the first time beyond like just playing with it in a browser or whatever that I've ever really used it. And I liked it. Like, it still felt like mostly I was writing Ruby, and I got some protection from the type system, and the compiler was okay. The error messages weren't always great, especially when something weird happened in a macro. But
1: it was pretty good. Sounds like it gets closer and closer to Rust all the time.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, we'll have to have Paul on, because I think it's interesting. And I think there's definitely, there's room, I think, for a solution that is a Rails-like web framework that builds in some of these things. It's still, like, as easy to write as Rails. Is for a lot of people.
1: I really wish Rust had the anonymous unions from Crystal.
0: Mm, explain how.
1: When you have a type that is string pipe integer. Oh right. Like you know, Rust has enums, so you can create a enum as string or integer that has a case for string and integer, but you have to repeat yourself a lot. It's very verbose. You know, there are a lot of cases where that's a good thing because it forces you to give a name to these cases. There's usually a more meaningful reason that something is a string versus an integer than just it is a string or it is an integer. But there are also sometimes there's like, no, I want this API to take a string or an integer. It's just one of those things that it's very lightweight and it's, and it's also really useful for, it would be useful to have for prototyping purposes when I'm not ready to, to name all of my concepts yet. I'm just trying to, to get the general structure of my code in place. Get it to compile and then you'll refactor? Yeah. That's
0: your red-green refactor loop of a strong type programming language?
1: <laughs> well, it's write the test mm-hmm. and the test fails to compile get the test to compile sometimes i'm able to get the test to compile but fail to run usually by just putting unimplemented as the body of a method somewhere Mm -hmm. and then make the test pass it's like it's like really red less red (laughs) green refactor so it's really red my entire terminal is red because it's not compiling (laughs) right sounds good (laughs) so i
0: don't know I definitely don't mean to come across as like poo pooing somebody's project. I think it's really interesting, but I also wouldn't choose to use it. And that's a lot. I can say that for a lot of libraries. And, you know.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, 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 seems like, it seems like it does what it's trying to do very well. Mm-hmm. It's just nothing I want to do.
0: <laughs> right. And there's, I guess, you know, from following along with my Twitter feed, as we're recording this, Ruby Kagi is ongoing. And I guess there's been some talk of type systems there. But, you know, I don't know. It's kind of a evergreen. Topic in Ruby for the last three, four years, I feel like.
1: Nate Berkepek tweeted about this. Again, I have no clue what they actually said at Kaigi, but he was like, For what it's worth, I'm not in favor of any proposals so far for types in Ruby. Too restrictive, too verbose, not dry. Matt's replied to that with, I agree 100%.
0: <laughs> I don't know that Ruby needs types. Like, Ruby can just remain an untyped thing. And if people like that, they can use it. And if they want typed things we have crystal or we have other even larger departures and i think sure. i think that might be okay i don't <laughs> like if Matt's isn't sold on i'm a on fan it, of types. me too i don't have as many as much experience using it but every time i do i'm like well, this would be nice i can see the the entire class of problems which is most of them that i wouldn't have to deal with if this were a thing
1: i'm surprised people haven't looked more or maybe i mean maybe they ha- have i haven't seen any proposals though for ruby that really look at specifically what and how typescript is doing what it's doing hmm. so i think any proposal to add types to ruby would have to be gradual typing mm-hmm. and typescript is to my knowledge the only language that successfully basically retrofitted gradual typing into an existing language
0: yeah i just don't have much faith that it'll happen <laughs> and no, I, just, I don't either i just think that that's okay I don't know. I mean, I guess there's an argument to be made that if you could do this gradual typing thing and it immediately benefited all existing Ruby apps, then like, not immediately, but it was a benefit that existing Ruby apps could begin to take advantage of, then clearly there's value in that if you think you can do it in a good way that doesn't change Ruby too drastically from what it is.
1: Yeah, but I think, you know, a good type system at least needs to be interface based. Or my point being is not just this function takes a string. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's like you could think of it, I guess, to a certain extent. The way I think of it in Rust when you're taking a you know a concrete type versus a trait is do you care about how the data is structured or do you care about what you can do with it? Mhm. Right because if it's a, if it's the former you take a you take a concrete type and if it's the latter you take a a trait or some other generic thing that represents what you're trying to do with the thing.
0: Right. And but this goes back to like when I was doing Java and the advice was like don't program to classes program to interfaces. Right. But then like in every Java project I ever worked on there was like a there was an I account for the account interface and then there was an account an, impl. Account impl for the account implementation. <laughs> and it was like this yep. isn't I don't think this is what is meant but okay like I'll go along with this. And yep. so I don't want to go there.
1: <laughs> you know, when they said that though, it was specifically for Java, and it was specifically because things like mocking are easier if your functions take interfaces. Right. Yeah. And actually, kind of to a certain extent, was what they meant. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I guess I don't know. It just never. It was always like, oh, I need to add. Okay, hang on. I got to go to this file. Add the add the definition. <laughs> add the you know the method here, and then go add the implementation over in the same file called Impl, which yep. you know I don't <laughs> count Impl.
1: Oh, <laughs> yeah, anyway. I like it better in Rust. In Rust, it's Imple Account.
0: Is that actually, is that what people do?
1: Well, I mean, that's way, when you're implementing a trait, the code you write is Imple Trait Name for for oh, okay. All right. Okay.
0: All so right. you'd
1: be, you know, I, you're right. It'd be Imple I Account for Account. <laughs> <laughs> Even better, Imple I Account for Account Imple. It has nice bookends.
0: <laughs> do you have anything else you want to talk about? I could complain about GraphQL for a little bit. Uh, okay. So, I don't know. But this is a thing that I don't think is GraphQL's fault. I think it's a project. It's just something going on with this project. So, this project has a Rails API and a React front end, And there's a GraphQL, which is my first exposure to GraphQL as, like, somebody actually writing it, not, like, playing around with the GitHub GraphQL API. Mm-hmm. So, I kind of largely stayed away from it for, like, the first month, because the stuff I was improving didn't really escalate to the level of, like, needing to worry about writing new GraphQL mutations or things like that but eventually it was like okay I've got to now I actually have to start the UI because I need to run I've changed something that I've changed behavior and I want to see how it runs in the browser and so I try and fire up the front end API and part of what that does is like it tries to refresh the GraphQL schema right and on the front end they're using relay which is a popular package for these things and what that does is downloads like a schema.json file in this case and I guess if you're I've been doing a little bit of reading on this over the last couple of last week maybe and I guess like if you were being more modern you would actually what you would get is a like schema.graphql file but schema.json which defines like all of the various mutations you can do and like the types and what's required and various things like that so it refreshes that schema I have my, I have my server running on localhost I fire up webpack to you know get the build going it takes a little while I fire up the browser I hit the react front end in the browser I log in and then the minute it tries to make, like, its first GraphQL request, I get a bunch of warnings in the console about, like, undefined types and, like, <laughs> various things. So the first time I had this happen, I was like, okay, this, this doesn't sound like it's something that's supposed to be happening. So I go into Slack, and I'm like, I'm seeing this error. And they're like, oh, well, you, have to, you just have to refresh the schema. Like, remove that schema.json file, run this task again. And I do it, and it worked. And I was like, okay, great. And then as I'm using the thing, as I'm using the thing, I start getting that error again. <laughs> I'm like, this, I didn't stop anything or even change any code. Like, I don't understand. And so, like, I remove the schema.json file again. And I, I stop the server, remove the schema.json file, rebuild the schema.json file, start the server again. It takes, like, a minute because, you know, compiles. JavaScript compiles, you know, as they do. They grow and grow and grow. And, you know, sometimes that works. And sometimes it's like, nope, try again. Nope, try again. Like, same warning, same warning. So if there's somebody out there, this really isn't... I really have... I have no idea why this is happening because I do not have the time on this project and I don't have the previous experience to, like, be like, oh, I bet it's this. So if somebody out there hears this and says, like, oh, relay... GraphQL, schema JSON, needing to regenerate it, if you have a pointer (laughs) that can save me from having to do this dance, because it's like a minute long every time I'm like, I don't know, let me try and regenerate the schema, to the point where maybe it doesn't even have anything to do with that schema file because deleting it and regenerating it doesn't, like it just randomly fixes it sometimes, I don't understand. Anyway, that's my screed against what's happening right now to me, and if somebody out there can help me, I'd appreciate it.
1: Do you want a pointer?
0: (laughs) I want a (laughs) pointer, yeah,
1: yep. I've got a pointer for you. Okay. Unfortunately, it's a null pointer. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. I love it. I love it. I love. You could tell as soon as I said you want to, point I could hear, you knew what was coming. Yes. <laughs> All right. Uh, dad jokes.
0: Yeah. If a listener out there wants to help me out, that'd be cool.
1: I'll probably, you know,
0: by the time this goes out, it'll be a couple weeks from now, and maybe we'll actually have it solved. But it's just the kind of thing. It's one of those things that if you've been on a project long enough, you just kind of like grow these calluses towards it, and you're like, oh yeah, it's that thing again. I got to do this and like maybe you write a script that does it automatically and like but it's one of those things that to me is I just can't stand any longer (laughs) it has to be fixed I don't know what it is and I just don't have the knowledge for it
1: I want to know how we got into a world where we can be complaining about the compile times for an interpreted language it does take forever I don't again I don't have the
0: Webpack and front end chop to determine why it takes so long but man it takes a
1: long time to build this. It's unfortunate. Maybe Sean Larkin can tweet at us and let us know. <laughs> All
0: right. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 126.
1: As always, ratings and reviews on iTunes are much appreciated. If
0: you have feedback about this episode or any other episode, you can tweet us at underscore bikeshed, email us at host at bikeshed.fm, or leave a comment on the website.
1: Thanks for listening to Bike Shed, and we'll see you next time.